Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome today. We have given your obligatory five-minute, five extra Colorado minutes to get here on a Saturday morning, which we don't give you on Sunday mornings, as you well know. We start right at 1040, but, but we are grateful that you're, that you're here today and, uh, and so glad that, that you're here for what I believe are going to be some really important conversations in the life of this church. Our speaker today is, is Don McLaughlin. I'm curious, how many of you have had a chance to hear Don before? Okay, awesome. So for many of you, truly, this man needs no introduction. But for others of you, Don is the preaching minister at the North Atlanta Church of Christ. Uh, he has been there since 1997, and uh, uh, math is not my thing, so I can't make that happen as far as how many years off the top of my head. Um, but it's like a lot since 1997. And... Uh, he has uh, just a whole slew of kids, and uh, so much of having children has informed kind of where he is in ministry and kind of what his message is about, uh, even the messages that he will bring us today. Uh, had the honor of knowing Don real well during our Atlanta days and from the old days on the youth ministry circuit, um, and, and, you know, and being close to a couple of his kids. Uh, and uh, I've heard Don many, many times. And I've always been moved by the things that Don does. Don did a series on Nehemiah one time at a men's retreat for us back in Atlanta, which was some of the most powerful stuff I'd ever heard. But the stuff he's doing right now, the material he's presenting right now, I believe really is, uh, is, is done in his sweetest spot when he talks about love first, ending hate before it's too late. I've heard him speak on this topic at Pepperdine, and, and uh, um, I'm just always just moved every time I hear it, and personally convicted, not just big picture convicted and agreement, in agreement with a lot of things and other things where I get my own, you know, bloody noses and things like that because, uh, because I really feel convicted about leading with love. Um, and even last night in the time that he spent with elders and staff, I came home thinking about some things, about ways I need to change and ways I can do better and how I can love better and love first. So we're really grateful Don is with us today. We're going to pray for him and then welcome him and turn things over to him. So let's pray together. Father, we're really grateful for the opportunity to be with Don today and thankful for the time that he's going to spend with us. Lord, we pray that, um, that you will speak through him in a powerful way. Mm-hmm. Lord, that we will open our hearts to be challenged, not necessarily to agree on every single thing, right. but Lord, to be open to the, to the guidance of your Holy Spirit as you work through Don today uh, to convict us and to change us and to help us to love more deeply and to love better and to love first. Uh, so give him strength and energy for the day. Thank you for all who are here today. Lord, I uh, uh, pray that you've assembled just the right group of people together today to take this material seriously and, Lord, then to go and, uh, and change the way we live and to have an impact on the others in this congregation who we know love you and, and we know they want to love first as well. So we pray we will just uh, go forth from this place and be light to all. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So we're going to turn over to Don. We'll have a break sometime midway through, about a 15-minute break. So just whenever you kind of reach that place when you feel like the coffee has reached the appropriate level. Uh, and then we'll take like maybe a 15-minute break and then come back together and then we'll have lunch around 12. Perfect. Okay? All right. So Perfect. let's welcome Don Wonderful. McLaughlin today. Hey. Matt. 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 Let's see. Let's see. How, how does this work? Is this okay? Can you hear okay? Okay. Wonderful. Well, it's good to be with you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for getting up on a, a Saturday morning. And uh, for a few of you driving down from Denver, 
and so I'm uh, excited that you're with us this morning. Uh, what I'd ask you to do today is bring your whole self. Uh, it doesn't make any sense for us to try to make progress in such important conversations if we uh, feel like we've got to hide part of ourselves. So sometimes people will say things like, you know, well, don't bring politics into it. Well, that's silly because politics affect the way we think and the way we act. And I was raised where one of my parents is Republican and one of them is Democrat, and they both felt comfortable sharing what they thought about everything. And so I grew up uh, in that kind of a, a, a setting, and it just taught me that it doesn't really do anyone any favors to be less of you than you really are. The second thing, and I appreciate Matt saying this, is agreement isn't the goal. You understand that there are many things about you some time ago that you don't agree with now. So if you don't even agree with yourself and you're still all right with you, then don't imagine that you have to agree with another person to be all right with them. Agreement is oversold. Agreement is oversold. So often in the quest for agreement, we have to settle for a lesser outcome. So I would ask you today not necessarily to agree, I just ask you <clears throat> to bring your whole self to the, to the conversation. We're going to do a little activity right here, right now at the front end, and it's going to be uncomfortable. And don't you, aren't you glad, aren't you glad we're just going to dive in with something uncomfortable right at the beginning? Now, if you are at a table with someone that you already know really well, then you're going to have to get to a table where there's at least a few faces that you don't know, and here's what we're going to do. <clears throat> now, I told you this is uncomfortable. We are going to share our middle name. Now... If you don't have a middle name, then all you will do is say that, and then you might share a story about your name, your, your given name. Where did it come from? Do you know where it came from? Did you like it? Did you not like it? But let me tell you why we're doing this. There's two reasons. I've been at our church for 22 years, and uh, every Sunday morning I teach a Bible class. And I had a Bible class with about 60 64 people in this Bible class, 64 adults, right? And uh, we would try to do discussion and so on, try to get to know each other. But I could tell we were just really struggling to get to know each other. In fact, people that came to Bible class for a few years had trouble remembering each other's names. I read a study that was done about memory and names. How many of you have had trouble meeting someone and within a minute, you can't remember their name, right? And it'll happen today, okay? Uh, so what the study did is the study explored that issue and they discovered something. And that was that when people shared their middle name, their ability to remember the middle name went up by an enormous factor. So I thought, let's try it. At 64 people in the class, I asked them to get into groups of four, if it, and if anybody needed a group of six, that was fine to do the math, and I told them what I just told you, and people gasped. Uh, share my, what, my middle, well, I, don't, I haven't told anyone my middle name, I'm not doing it. I am not doing it. And I thought, well, if we can't share our middle name, we might have a little bit of difficulty with the rest of this conversation. I mean, if that's your threshold of emotional pain, we're in trouble, right? <clears throat> Everyone agreed. 
So they got together and they were you know, chitter-chattering about their middle names. And so then I went to the first group and, uh, and I just said, okay, so uh, would you please uh, stand and would you share the middle names of the people in the group? Well, they remembered everyone's middle name. I thought, well, that was interesting. So then, you know, I just went to the next table. You know, would you share the people in your group? They remembered all their names, but also remembered, because it was kind of a confident person, they shared all the names of the first table, the middle names. And I thought, hmm, went to the next table. Well, someone at that table who also felt, you know, a little confident did the same thing. Now, people didn't nail it 100%, but by deep into the process, people were listing 20 to 25 middle names from tables they weren't a part of. I thought, well, somebody did their research and we just confirmed their research a little bit. The reason I think it's fascinating is because it tells something about us that we are not readily observing from the surface. We expect to get people in instant, in an instant. We expect to be somebody, uh, what's your name? And we expect them to tell us. They should tell us. They haven't agreed to tell us, but they should. Because we walked up and put out our hand and said, my name is Don. And what are they supposed to do? Well, they're supposed to reciprocate. If someone said, if someone stood like this and said, I ain't telling you my name, we'd be like, what is wrong with you? People are supposed to tell that. But what about telling something that requires a little more openness? That proved to be more difficult and more impacting. So, again, uh, <laughs> For Jovan and Anna, you're going to have to go to another table. <laughs> My guess is that you know each other's middle names. So, uh, so you get what I'm saying? If you're at a table only with someone who already knows all of that, scooch over to another table and do it right now. And then I'm going to give you a few minutes to share. It. Does anyone not have a middle name? Raise your hand if you don't have a middle name. Okay, so we have a few, and I anticipate that always, okay? So just share your, your given name and a little bit about about your given name, okay? So let's do it. I'll call you back together in just a few minutes. All righty. We're going to start with this table right here. So you're actually going to have to step back up to this table. We're going to start here. <clears throat> Michael's going to kick us off. And first of all, tell us your middle name. Uh, Andrew. And where does it come from? Uh, Name Andrew comes from the fact that my mom wanted to name me Jason and my dad wanted to name me Robert and neither would give in for the middle name, so they came up with Michael Andrew. They compromise, right? So do you know any other middle names at the table? I knew my wife's. Before this exercise. Before the session? Yeah. All right. Do you know any more now? I do. Okay. You want to tell us? Uh, her original middle name was her was Trinidad. Um. That was Angeline, by the way. From her mother. Yes. Right? That, was her, that was her mom's right? middle name as well. Okay. Maiden name. Okay. Uh, Did you learn any middle names at the table? Yes. Okay. You want to share them? Yes. So, Michael Andrew. Andrew is his middle name. Um, this is Sarah. Beth is her middle name. This is um, Mike, and his middle name is Anthony. And this is Barry, and her middle name is Anne. And we found out that... Most of us have A's uh, to oh, begin yeah. the middle name, too. That was another thing. Did Beth share any story about where her name came from? 
Um, middle name? Not the middle name, but the first name she did. Oh, she started what did her, she share? So her name is Sarah, but she said her father was a fighter pilot and that she, um, and that he, was it Saratoga was, he flew on the Saratoga, so Sarah, yeah. But she spells her name with an H at the end. Are you hearing this? This is a little creepy, isn't it? <laughs> that you would not only know it, but what? Remember it, right? So you... Your, uh, what was your middle name, Anne? So do you want to tell us about that? Um, I just tell people that like probably a fourth of Southern women in my generation, my middle name is Anne. <laughs> that would be correct. <laughs> That's brilliant. Okay, so this table here, did, did you learn some middle names? Yeah. All right. So. Ah. I mean, 30 year friends. Yeah, didn't know the middle name. That happens. Yeah. Right? So tell us a little bit about it. Well, let's see. Well, my middle name is Witten, uh, named after my father's mother, ah. her maiden name. And, uh, of course, I know my wife's, Sue. And Cleo's is Cleo. She won't tell us what her first name is. <laughs> <laughs> I said you didn't tell. Well, that's a good point. That's a good point. And a pair of Valens and a Mary. You guys both have the same middle name. Yes. Well, that's fascinating. Did you know that? No. Huh. Okay. So, Johns Hopkins, right? You're familiar with the famous hospital, right? Johns Hopkins. Well, those are the last names of two of his great-grandparents. One of them's name was Johns, and one of them was Hopkins. And when it finally came time to name the kid, he had two names, Johns Hopkins. How many of you have wondered if there was two different guys? Right? Because we do that sometimes, right? One guy's name is Johns and one guy's Hopkins. Nope, it's a guy. Your first name is Johns. Who names their kid John with an S? But there's a big story behind it. Johns Hopkins was a very wealthy businessman, but he was a Quaker. George Peabody, also a Quaker, who was deeply religious and believed in everything you have should be given to benefit the community, came to Johns Hopkins and he had a spiritual conversation with him. He said, listen, man, God has blessed you, but the way you're living your life right now, you're not taking that blessing and pouring it out like you are expected. Some of you know the background of Quakers. So Johns Hopkins took it upon himself to do that. The Quaker congregations in 1830 in the Maryland, D.C. area had all decided on their own to not only liberate all of their slaves, but to make financial uh, arrangements for all of them, having served them with no pay. They recognized not only the sin in that, but that the way that they had enslaved them had created a problem for their future. So not only did they bind together and hold themselves spiritually accountable for this, but they also held themselves to take on a future role in the future prosperity of the people they had once held in slavery. Having done that many decades later, Johns Hopkins was embedded in that tradition. So when he started four entities, Johns Hopkins, a research hospital, America's first research hospital, Johns Hopkins, what became Johns Hopkins University, Johns Hopkins Med Nursing School, which was the first to admit both black and white students and an orphan's home that took in both black and white children. So now you know a little bit more about each other and our country and the way that our lives intersect 
with big themes. I'm of the conviction that personal relationships in Christ are the key to dismantling the bigotry and the systemic racism that infects our culture. I believe that that is going to be dismantled permanently through God-ordained, Christ-centered, Spirit-filled personal relationships. Today you did something wonderful but also vulnerable. You shared your name, your middle name. My middle name is Rex. My grandchildren call me Baba. So since one of my granddaughters likes dinosaurs, she's taken to calling me Babasaurus Rex. And those of you that have grandchildren know, whatever they name you, it's, it's what it is. But why are we the way we are? Why is it that Lifeway Research did a study of 330,000 churches in America who claim some allegiance to Christ, and out of those 330,000, 86% of them said that they were just fine with the demographics of their church as they are, as they are. Now you say, well, okay, well, maybe that's a good sign. Well, no, it's not. Because less than 8% of the churches that claim allegiance to Jesus Christ, less than 8% of them are integrated more than 20%. Why is that a factor? Many of you that are in business and study sociology know that critical mass is based on the idea of whatever the uh, required mass is to change the organization. That's what critical mass does. Or to change the dynamics of something. So they named that at about 20%. Less than 8% of the 330,000 churches in America that claim allegiance to Jesus Christ are even integrated up to 20%. And of those 8%, most of them are not doing it on purpose. The demographics of the neighborhood is changing, so they are primarily one race for a good period of time. The demographics change in the neighborhood, and then the church is another race eventually. There are only 3% of the 330,000 churches that claim allegiance to Christ in America that on purpose are trying to be a house for all nations. Let that settle in a little bit. And 86% of them reported in a massive nationwide survey that we're okay with that. Are we okay with that? Do we really believe that the best the church has to offer society is to look like society? So I want to take us on a little uh, journey here, and I'm going to ask you to just hang with me for a few minutes, and I think this will be somewhat uh, helpful. So let's go back, just walk back with me in time, and let's go back to Genesis chapter 1, all right? Raise your hand if you have a general familiarity with Genesis chapter 1. Right, so you went to vacation Bible school, and we got day one, day one, there was light when there was none, right? We got this, right? So along about verse 26, we stumble into this beautiful narrative of how God created people and what he anticipated. Let us make humanity in our image, our plural image, singular. Boy, there's a theological conundrum right at the beginning of the Bible, right? How can the one God be somehow plural? 
That's confusing for many people. Would you not agree? But then when he talks about image, what does he say? That he's going to make male and female both in his image. So you have God saying, let us make them in an image. So God and humanity are going to share an image. The image of God as it unfolds in Scripture is what? Father, Son, and Spirit. So you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and because God reveals God's self that way, we know it to be true whether we can fully understand it or not. But when God makes humanity, God makes humanity male and female in his image. So that first chapter is characterized by the word union. I want you to write that down because you'll need it here in a little bit. So there's the union of God's self, Father, Son, and Spirit. What is this, how does Scripture describe God? What's the famous Israelite Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Agreed? Union. But what about humanity? Well, that's also union. How do you know? Because male and female are made in a singular image, the image of God. So humanity reflects the image of God. So whoever God is, humanity is reflecting that. So God is union and humanity is union. That is chapter 1 and chapter 2. We come into chapter 3 and we get a new word. The word I want you to write down is rupture. The unity is ruptured. That rupture comes as a result of sin. Satan steps into this union and seeks to destroy it. So now we discover that there's a rupture, a rupture between humanity and God and a rupture between humanity and each other. So if we could do this uh, just like this, and I didn't ask them in advance, but I've thought about how I want to illustrate this. If we could just, Jovan and Anna, would you come and just help me with this just briefly? Um, and uh, they'll come up here and just help me with this. So you have, uh, for now, Adam and Eve, right? So come on up. Thank you. I do appreciate you doing this. So we have Adam and Eve, right? And they're in perfect union in chapters 1 and 2. Agreed? But they're not just in perfect union with each other showing the image of God. They're in perfect union with God. But if you step over this way, right square in the middle, come right to the middle. In chapter 3, we have a rupture between the two of them which is described in chapter 3, and we have a rupture between them and God. So I want everyone in this room to stand up right now. Everyone stand. And what I'd like everyone right here, all of you on my left, your right, turn and face that wall, and all of you on this side, turn and face that wall. So now what do we have illustrated? That what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden with the rupture is like a crack in a windshield. It just kept cracking until it shattered the unity of humanity. Now let me ask you all while you're still facing the walls. Do you believe what you're doing right now illustrates the relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit? Shake your head, yes, no, or maybe it'll go faster. So this doesn't represent the unity of God. But that 
It's where humanity found itself after Genesis 3. Thank you all. Please uh, be seated. Thank you. So the rupture in Genesis 3 between humanity and God turns into a rupture between humanity with the rest of humanity. You understand the illustration of the crack in the windshield. It started small, but what eventually happened? It spread throughout the whole windshield. It spread throughout humanity. So what do we find very quickly with God, and I'm going to speak in familial terms, God's first two grandsons. What are their names? Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel demonstrate what? The rupture. Cain is so ruptured with his brother Abel that God, you understand how I'm using the term grandfather, right? God as Adam and Eve's father, you understand how I'm using it? God steps in and he appeals to his grandson Cain. Remember that? He said, this thing's trying to get a hold of you, son. Don't let it happen. But even God's intervention doesn't stop Cain from taking his brother's life. The rupture just keeps expanding, does it not? You know the stories in Genesis, Noah. The rupture just keeps expanding. Even after the ark, the flood, the rupture keeps expanding. But God has a plan for this. God was not caught off guard. God has dealt with Satan. God knows what Satan is up to. God knows the hatred that Satan has for the union. So all Satan is consumed with is destroying the union. I want to say this, and I want you to consider it. I'm not asking for agreement. I'm asking for consideration. Do you understand that this is what I believe? I don't believe that humans are ever Satan's target. I believe it's always the heart of God. We are tools or instruments that Satan could use to wound God's heart, but we're never the target. It is the unity of the living God that Satan's principalities and powers seek to destroy. But God calls a man named Abram. How do we know him more famously? Abraham. He calls this man, and this man follows the Lord. And he makes a promise to him, and it's repeated several times, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and so on. That through this guy, all nations, translated from Hebrew into the Greek Septuagint, all ethnicities, through this guy, will be blessed. And the motion moves forward. And so we have a son of promises. His name is Isaac, right? And then there's the son Jacob. And Jacob is renamed Israel. Israel, strugglers with God. God could have picked out a lot of names, even if they had a little disagreement, right? God could have picked out a lot of names. He picked struggler with him. How do you name your kid? Struggler, let me tell you, it's a struggle. Some of you said, well, I would have renamed my teenage children, perhaps Israel, right? But God renamed his kid Israel, and they become what? The people of God. God brings them out of Egypt. He puts a tabernacle in their midst, and where does God dwell? In their midst. Leviticus 16, 16 says that the tabernacle was planted where God dwelled in the midst of their uncleanness. God knows what his kids are like. God knows the rupture. But God plants himself in the middle of the rupture and he goes to work. And that unfolds through the ages and eventually there's a temple. And the temple is built and what does God say? I will make my 
dwelling there. And even though his servant Solomon knows that God isn't like contained in a temple, they still understood that God's presence was there. But then a light begins to shine, a forward light. And that light says that someone's going to come, one like David, right? This Ruth chapter 4, you know, this anointed one is coming. And then there's going to be one like unto David that comes. And finally, who comes? Well, you know the scripture. In the beginning, sounds like Genesis, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and apart from Him, nothing was made that has been made. And in Him was life, and His life was the light of men, right? And the light shined in the darkness, and oh, guess what this time? The darkness couldn't conquer it. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Paul tells us, well, let me explain how the significance of this. Jesus is the second Adam. He's the second Adam. So see, when the rupture happened, God had his eye on it and never took his eye off of it. God himself planned in advance that he, in Christ, in his son, would be the second Adam and that humanity would be rebirthed toward restoring the union that was stolen in the garden. How many of you, if you were God, would have gone back after what Satan stole from you? Would you have just let it go? Well, had two kids and it blew up in the garden. That was a failed experience. No, God wasn't willing to give up one micron of his creation to Satan. And so Jesus comes. And through Jesus, union between you and God is restored. And union between humanity, is restored in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, you all know the story that God was working through Israel and at that time you who are called uncircumcised by the circumcised, you Gentiles, you were separate for the covenant of Israel. You were without hope, without God in the world. But in Christ, on the cross, in his body, God made the two one and out of him came what a one new humanity. God is doing it. You know, it's confusing sometimes when you hear Jesus say something like to his disciples, you know, it'll be better if I leave. They weren't buying it. And some of us think it would be better if we were back there with him because we have trouble buying it. But God says, if you understood my mission, you'd understand why it's actually better if Jesus leaves. Because when Jesus leaves, the Holy Spirit then comes in Ephesians chapter 2 and says that the church rises up as a temple in which God lives by his Spirit. God is living in his people, in the temple in which he lives by his spirit. So what are we doing again? If we were back to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 where there was perfect union, what is the church now? The church is the living presence of God on earth, once again reflecting the oneness of God himself. Maybe this is why Jesus said, Behold, I'm making all things new. 
coming down out of heaven, Revelation 20 and 21, was this new city. You know the story. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. God now makes his dwelling among people. Right? And she's adorned as a what? A bride for her husband. We know that vocabulary, don't we? We know who the bride is, right? And God makes his dwelling. And you know, and it's in that beautiful community that he's making all things new. For those of you that are familiar with what we call the restoration movement, the American Restoration Movement, launched in the early 1800s, a unity movement. Isn't that fascinating? Do you want to know why? Because here's what restoration meant when it started. Restoration meant looking to the future. In the beginning, restoration meant looking to the future. They believed that they were ushering in God's kingdom. Ushering in the oneness that God was restoring that had been stolen in the rupture. And they wanted to be a part of it. So they were calling Christians together, calling people, be united, be united. Why? Because this is what Jesus is doing in the world through the Spirit and the church. Making all things new. You see, in the beginning, restoration wasn't a look backward. That didn't come till a few generations later. They weren't looking back at a church in a previous time and trying to figure out how to be them. They were looking forward to what God was doing to restore all things in the future. Their look was future when oneness and unity would be restored. Hmm. So, God starts with unity between him and people, people and each other. The unity of the people represents the unity of God. Then what happens? What was your next word? Rupture. And the rupture explodes on the earth. And it just keeps expanding. But God is at work. And through the, through the promise to Abraham, through the people of Israel, through the coming of Jesus, through the church, God is restoring that oneness. It's kind of exciting to be a part of something so incredible, is it not? Isn't it exciting to be a part of something that's happening in the world where we know the end game and we're pursuing it so that the church doesn't look like the rupture, the church looks like the restoration. But if we go back to the LifeWay study of the 86% of the 330,000 churches that claim allegiance to Christ, they look like the what? The rupture. They don't look like the restoration. That is a crisis. That's a crisis. Let's talk about this a little bit. How many of you remember this guy here, uh, Dr. Kent Brantley? You remember this guy? Let me refresh you. This is the guy that was the face of the Ebola crisis. This is him. You remember him now? He's one of the two that got Ebola, right? And remember the famous story where they find the, the, that they have these vials these, uh, uh, for the, for the, that would uh, help the people. He gives the first vial to his coworker, and then he give, administers the second one to himself. This is when uh, they finally got him lifelighted to uh, Atlanta, uh, I think. You know what? I might need a little help here. Thank you. 
Uh, this is when they lifelight him to Atlanta. And uh, you might remember that many people, politicians, people were saying, uh, he got sick over there, leave him over there. We shouldn't let him come home. Americans felt horrible about that. We thought that's the craziest thing in the world. He's one of ours. Bring him home. Right there to Atlanta where I live, they brought him home to Emory. And when they brought him home to Emory, as you know, uh, as the story went on, he uh, got well. Well, I've known Kent Brantley since he was six years old. His, uh, I work with his uncle for the last 22 years, Ken Snell. Kent's mom and dad serve at the church, Southeastern Church of Christ in Indianapolis. That's where I met them. His dad, Jim, is an elder there. And so after they got out of there, then Kent came and spoke at our church. And uh, so let's go ahead and, and uh, move ahead. So I want you to think about this for a few minutes. When Kent came to speak at our church, here's what he shared. People were dying in mass. They didn't know why. And those who were supposed to help appeared to be the cause. Do you remember this story? People were coming in mobs to the hospitals, attacking the hospitals, the guards, the doctors, and the nurses, to pull their people out of the hospital because they thought they were getting sick there. Now, why was that such a huge problem? Because they were taking infected people back out into their villages where it would explode, right? So he said, what we had to do is we actually had to go to these villages and help people understand that we are here to help and to restore the trust of the people in the institution that's here to help. Could that sound familiar for churches? Could it be that one of the reasons that the world does not necessarily turn to the church for help is because it looks like we're the problem? Because we look like the rupture, it looks like we're infecting people. So let's take a look at this. If you go ahead a couple of slides, I want you to look at four uh, uh, circumstances, uh, four symptoms of a sick church. Now, these are up there on the screen, but I want you to take a look at them. So the way that people sometimes in church start thinking is, the best people fit in with me. The best people fit in with me. The smartest people think like me. If someone disagrees with you theologically, then they're just, you know, intellectually uh, 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 dishonest, right? Uh, the safest people fear what I fear. So if I fear something in society and someone else doesn't, that's disrupting to me. Everyone should fear what I fear, and the good people are good like me, meaning the sins that I'm comfortable with, they should be comfortable with, but the ones that I'm not comfortable with, they should be uncomfortable with, right? You get what I'm saying there? I know that's a mouthful, but you get what I'm saying? So if I've become comfortable with some sin, well, then everyone else should kind of agree that, yeah, that's not as a big of a deal as you should think it is. But if somebody else is doing a sin that I don't like, then you should agree that it's as bad as I think it is. Right? How many of you can see a problem with this approach? That that could really create a problem for evangelism and healing, the rupture, I want you to look at an example of two churches, okay? Let's take the first one. What are you saying to me? Okay, go ahead and try it. Beautiful. Yes. 
All right, so you remember uh, June of 2015, Dylan Roof walks into Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, sits with a group of uh, Christians for uh, approximately an hour, and then shouting racial epitaphs, steps up and shoots and kills nine people. How many of you remember that horrific event, right? So what happens over the course of the next year? Well, over the course of the next year, we see something kind of otherworldly where people in that church begin to express forgiveness. They don't, re- they don't pull away consequence. They begin to express forgiveness. The following year, on a one-year uh, anniversary, uh, the police chief in that town said, or uh, the assistant chief said, I have never seen anything in my life so impacting as the last year the way that AME Church responded. However, there was another church from Topeka, Kansas, Westboro Baptist. Westboro Baptist Church picketed the funerals. They carried that sign to the funeral that God sent the shooter. In a BBC documentary, done in Britain, obviously, BBC documentary on the most hated family in America is the title of the documentary, the most hated family in America. It's the Roper family, Phelps Roper family. You might remember that this uh, attorney, Phelps, founded Westboro Baptist Church. There's approximately 40-some members in this church. He had at least eight children. Five of them were attorneys. His daughter, Shirley Phelps Roper, one of them, And this is how she responded when they asked the question, don't you think that your approach might actually turn people off to the gospel? She said, you think it's our job to win souls for Christ. Church spends 200,000 annually to spread God's hate. You can look it up yourself. That's a quote. You see two different churches, right? Don't you want to ask the question, how do people dearly loved by God become comfortable mistreating people? Now, here's what I want us to take a moment on. You understand that the reason that AME, Emmanuel AME Church stands out is because, thankfully, of that sort of circumstance, that's not as common anymore. So some might say that Dylan Roof's actions represent an extreme How many of you would at minimum agree that the actions of Westboro Baptist represent an extreme? Well, you know the problem with bringing those two up is because it's easy for us to not relate to either one of them or to over-relate to one of them. You do realize that all of us are actually somewhere in the middle of all of it. We've got the potential for both. And sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. When I first moved, uh, uh, my wife and I were in Indiana, as I mentioned. We were there for nine years, and we loved it. We absolutely loved it. A church in Atlanta calls us in uh, March of 1996, and they said, hey, our, our minister is retiring, and we've been praying about it, and uh, we would like for you to consider uh, taking the job in Atlanta. And I thanked them, and I said, oh, I so wonderful that you called. I appreciate you all. I bet you're a great church. Uh, we love Indiana, and we're, 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 we're committed to staying here. And so then in August, they called back and said, hey, man, we're still praying about this, and your name still comes up. And how did I, you know, so, well, thank you so much. I will pray for you, and I just hope the right person comes your way. 
They called back in November, right? Or October, October. Said, we're still praying about this. So I went to my elders in Indiana and I said, look, man, I don't even know how to bring this up. I, we're so close. I feel like I'm just betraying you even bringing it up. But I, I wouldn't want to approach anything this, like this without your concern. One of my elders looked at me and he said, well, I'll tell you. Now, I was 36 at the time. He said, uh, uh, I've been 36, but you haven't been 73. I thought, well, that's a good point. He said, here's the thing. We want you and Susan and your family here for the rest of your life, but why don't you go to Atlanta, check it out. If it's not God's will, you'll feel better about it. If it is God's will, we'll deal with it. Okay. So Susan and I go to Atlanta, December of 1996. Well, I don't know what I was thinking, but the county we lived in, in Indiana, used to be in the 20s, the head of the Ku Klux Klan, Elwood, Indiana. It was one of the most prejudiced counties in all of the north. So what, was it? what do you think I was thinking when I was going to go to Atlanta? Ah, oh, man, that place, you know, they'll be way more integrated. They got it going on down there, you know. This is the birthplace, you know, of Martin Luther King Jr. You know, this is the civil rights icon of the South. You know, they'll have it together. I get to the church. It was a church of about, I don't know, about 1,200 people. And I realized they don't, they don't have it together. So I go to an elders meeting that afternoon. I meet with the elders that afternoon. I changed my first question. I said, I've changed my first question. My first question is, are you primarily white on purpose, or do you not know how to reach out to people that aren't white? They said, well, uh, we don't know how to reach out to people that aren't white. I said, if we could learn together, would you do it? Well, yeah. So they had one black elder and his wife. So I looked at them, and I said, what's it like to be black at this church? a white elder started to answer. <laughs> True story. This black elder's wife says, uh, looks at him and says, I've, I've got this. So she begins to share. There were several dynamics that I noticed there. One, uh, I think you would realize, pretty typical, right? But the other thing I thought was fascinating was is that she felt comfortable to step in and a white male in power position stepped back. I thought, well, that seems hopeful. So eventually, over the course of time, we move there. We get started on this. That same elder's wife brings me in 1998, brings me uh, an article. And uh, she said, I want you to read this article on race relations. So I read the article. I come back and she says, well, what did you think of it? I thought, I thought it was great. She said it was terrible. I said, it was? Yes. Oh. Well, what was wrong with it? She said, I'm not going to tell you. Now that you know that for a person of color, it's terrible, you go back and read it and you figure it out. When I went back and read it, it was like I had never read the article before. Because I had always judged that information from what? From within my own experience. I was now looking at the information through a new set of eyes. So see, the crisis that we have, and I want to make sure this is clarified, isn't just individual. How many of you know someone that is embarrassingly racist? Some of you don't get out enough. How many of you know someone that doesn't think they're racist, but they say a lot of racist stuff? Thank you. You do realize that individual bigotry and individual prejudice doesn't establish racism. Racism is a system 
that functions where some have the power to influence what happens to the lives of other people who don't have the same power to influence that circumstance. Influence, that, that racism that we see here in America is primarily systemic. It's a system that functions. And because that system functions without anyone pulling the levers anymore, the 330,000 churches where 86% of them think everything's okay are complicit in the system and don't know it. So now, how many of you know someone that's pretty complex, meaning that they've got these racist tendencies, but they've also got a lot of great characteristics? Have you known someone like that? They were very loving, very kind, very good to people, right? But they didn't recognize their racism, right? So let me remind you of a story in Scripture. Acts chapter 6, let your mind drift there. And this is the story of the widows who are being overlooked and the establishing of the seven men that were going to take a look after the widows. How many of you remember that story? That's important that we remember this. So do you remember what the difference was? What was the evidence of the rupture? What was the evidence of the rupture in Acts chapter 6? Say it again. That was it. So the Hebraic widows are being what? Cared for, and the Grecian widows are being overlooked. Remember that? Well, some might think, well, you know, people just didn't know the streets very well. Maybe there's a clerical error. The names got messed up on the list or something like this. Well, you might remember in the 4th century B.C., Alexander the Great conquered the known world. You might also remember that later in that century, he was killed, and the kingdom was divided up primarily into three groups. The Seleucid took over what we know as Israel and the ancient Near East. One of their famous leaders, Antiochus, was uh, fond of naming cities after himself. So you might remember the famous city of Antioch, named after Antiochus. Well, Antioch was like the faucet, and when he turned it on, Greek culture flowed out of it. And it drenched Israel. And Israel split into two groups. The people that were absolutely sure that everything Greek was awful. And if you're a true Israelite, you'll hate everything Hellenistic. Other people thought, I think Hellenism is here to stay. They learned the Greek language. You all know that, right? Our New Testaments were originally in what? That's right. So some of them thought, well, it's not all bad. But if you gave any margin at all to accept any Greek culture, what did that other group think? You're a traitor. And so they were divided. And by the time of Christ, that rift was so deep that even though all of those widows were Jewish, all of them were Christian, all of them were hungry, and all of them were widows, those that had been Hellenized, representing Greek culture, were cast aside by those who felt like they didn't deserve to be treated equal. The signal of the what? The rupture. So what did the church do? Well, you know, it's tough. I mean, that's a, there's a long history here, and, you know, it goes way back centuries, and you can't fix all of that. Man, it's back there in the olden days. Those times are gone. That was the old Israel. This is the new Israel. Come on. No, that's not how the church approached it, was it? What did the church do? They said, man, we got to deal with this. 
And do you remember the names of the guys that they picked to kind of rectify what went wrong? Ah, yeah, see, they're all Greek names. So they actually realized we've got kind of a bigger problem here. And if we don't want to look like the rupture, but we want to look like God's restoration of unity, we're going to have to do things that signal to the world that we're not buying into the rupture. We're buying into the restoration. Now, at your table, I want you to take a few moments and talk about the story of the Samaritan. What do we call it? The story of the Good Samaritan. This is where it's in Luke 10. At your table, I want you to take that story and talk about why Jesus would tell that story to help people think about the rupture and the restoration. Why would he tell that story? So at your table, I'm going to give you about seven or eight, nine minutes to go to work on it. So go to work on that. And uh, this is a great time. If you need to run to the restroom quickly, go do that. Uh, if you need to, I'm not saying anyone needs to, you might, but if you do, go ahead. And then uh, uh, but at your table, what are you talking about? Luke 10 and the story of the... Samaritan, and what are you going to do with that story? You're going to talk about the what? The rupture and the restoration. Yes, and thank you. If you're at a table where there's just a few of you and you want to get to a larger table, go ahead and do that. We'll take, uh, take a few minutes to have this conversation. The Spirit and God the Son are one unless God told us. <laughs> How would you know? You know, one of the reasons that people reject the, 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 the concept that Jesus is God is because it doesn't make sense in human terms. So we'll just say, well, it can't be right. And God says, why are you doing that to me? You don't like it when people do that to you. When someone says, I know what you're thinking, and you say, you haven't known what I've been thinking for 30 years. <laughs> I know what your agenda is. I would love to hear it. Tell me more. Tell me about me without me telling you. So when this man says, Lord, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love that neighbor as yourself, he's operating off the theory of thin. Why? Well, because, let me back up here. How many of you know this face if you live in Colorado Springs? How many of you know this face if you live in Colorado Springs? This young man, Ramon uh, Kildridge, was convicted of murder. Shot a guy in the back of the head. How many of you know this face if you live in Colorado Springs? This young man on the right shot a girl, cold blood, convicted of murder, or, or arrested for murder. If you went on the website last night, and that's why I did it, the news of these two people, four, four hours old and five hours old, that's where I got it, last night for this very purpose, is to put it up there on the screen. Because I'm going to tell you something. If we live in Atlanta, you know what that face right there represents to many people in Atlanta? There it is. That's the face of crime right there. That's what those people are, say it, like. But, huh, I went on the Internet last night right here in Colorado Springs. Hmm. Huh? Looks like two people that killed someone. Why do we associate one with a group 
and the other one not. Did both of those young men kill someone? Yes, they did. Did both of them murder someone? Yes, they did. So why does one of them fit the narrative that says that's what those people are like? And one of them says, boy, that's a bad apple. Several years ago in Atlanta, you might remember this, a man named Brian Nichols shot up the courthouse in downtown Atlanta. It was a horrible experience, terrible, horrific. Killed a judge, killed a court reporter, killed a, a, a law enforcement officer. He was on the run in Atlanta for a few days. It was a very scary time. It was horrible. I knew because of the color of his skin how the story would be told. By the end of the week, he was captured, but I knew it was on our church's mind. You know, when the courthouse, when that happens in a courthouse, it's very fearful. It's upsetting to the community, you know, because the court is supposed to be what? Safe and right. That exact same week in a northern state, Minnesota or Wisconsin, I don't remember which, the same thing played out, the exact same scenario. Not as many people were killed, but it was the same scenario. A judge was shot in the courthouse, but that guy was wrapped in my color skin. So on a Sunday morning, I came in, and I put up a slide just like the one I put up for you. On one side was Brian Nichols. On one side was the other guy. And I didn't have to say, hey, does everyone notice that one of them has a darker skin and one of them has lighter skin? I just said, you know, it's tragic when these things happen in a community. We need to pray for our community, that our community can somehow be restored to a a sense of security and oneness and peace. After the sermon, one of our elders who's black came up to me and he said, I know what you just did. And thank you. Because you see, when Timothy McVeigh, does that name ring a bell? 1996, Marah Federal Building, Oklahoma City, 162 people killed, including children. When Timothy McVeigh did that, not one white person in America thought to themselves, oh no, now they're going to once again say that we are all terrorists. Here it comes again. White on white crime again. Good grief, I'm so sick of being characterized by what that guy did. No white people thought that they were anything like Timothy McVeigh. But you see how systemic racism functions. I'm going to make sure you get my point. I'm going to say it again. Did they both kill someone? Yes, right here in Colorado Springs. One's already convicted of murder. The other one is arrested on first-degree murder charges. I'm just pointing out that the stories are told differently. You, You follow where I'm coming from on that? So now I want you to think about this. Jesus, when you think about this story right here, do you remember this picture? you remember the famous picture? 1960, New Orleans, William France Elementary School, Ruby Bridges. you remember this? She had two first days of school that year, first grade. For two first days, okay? She went to school in September, and then she went to her first day of school again in November. She was one of approximately 100 black students that were put through a battery of testing 
so that they would go be the first to integrate public schools in the South. Ruby Bridges was one of six that was chosen. She goes to the William France Elementary School. That day, all, all of the other parents pulled their children out of the school. All of them. Now, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have taught Sunday school to little children? Raise your hand if you've taught Sunday school to little children. Okay, now this is, I, I appreciate all of you. How many of you have ever met a kid that didn't know how to share? And it was like the child of one of the members, right? You're thinking, that mom and dad are not getting it with this kid, man, right? You know, so you're in there, and little Johnny needs to learn how to share, right? You know, So you're in there, and you're, you're committed, man. You're either a young mother or a grandmother or a, or a teacher, and you're in there, and you're going to make sure Johnny learns how to share, right? And if, any, if Johnny gets anything, he's going to get pat the Bible. He's going to let Jesus loved me, and Johnny is going to learn how to share in the Sunday school class. So here's what's fascinating. When Ruby Bridges went to school, you remember the story. These four, these, there's four federal agents that escorted her to school. Why did she need federal agents escorting her? Because the sidewalks were lined primarily with young mothers, the same age as her mother, and grandmothers who were shouting cuss words and death threats. One of them held up a coffin with a black doll baby in it screaming at this six-year-old girl, holding Bibles. So, on Sunday morning, they were teaching Sunday school, teaching little Johnny how to share. But when it came to sharing education, where some guy says, hey, could my little child go to school with your little child? Not on your life. Well, how are you going to share? You're teaching Johnny to share. Shouldn't we all share? That's why she needed four federal agents. So she goes to school. This lady right here, uh, back up one. This is Barbara Henry. Barbara Henry was from Boston. And Barbara Henry was her first grade teacher. And Ruby was her only student the entire year, the only student in the class. They became lifelong friends. That's her later in life. Barbara Henry uh, taught her. This guy is one of the federal agents. This is Charles Burks. Now, this is at an, an interview in Indianapolis when Charles is in his 90s. Now, I love what you see the scene there of their hands overlapped together. Charles uh, is that federal agent right there. So that's him back in 1960, okay? And then, of course, this is him today. He said meeting Ruby was the most important experience of my life. He was a federal agent. He said she's the bravest person I ever met. Hmm. Well, the next day, something happened. The next day, these two girls went to school. The next day. On the left is Pam, and on the right is uh, Yolanda. Uh, you see Pam there, Pam Foreman. She's with her father, who was a minister. That night, he set his family down together and said, this is not right. I'm a preacher of the what? The gospel which is a story of what? How people are right with God and made right with each other? What in the world are we doing? So the next morning, he takes he and his little daughter, Pam, and that guy with them is not a federal agent. He's a news reporter. Yolanda's dad, he was a veteran. He said, this isn't what we fought for. This is not what we fought for. And I refuse to come home to a country where I fought for freedom somewhere else and we're not going to live it here. 
So his little girl went to school. This is kind of fascinating here. This is Pam Foreman and Ruby at a reunion at Texas A&M in 2015. I heard that. She spoke there. We had Ruby come to North Atlanta to our church. This is a picture of our church family, part of it. We had Ruby come to Atlanta. And we, our gym isn't this, as large as yours, but it's kind of the same idea. And so in the gym, we set up a labyrinth. And uh, people could enter. And when they entered in, they would walk through a series of exhibits. And we started with slavery in the 1700s in England. And then we went from there to the slave trade to Homer versus, uh, or, uh, or uh, Plessy, Homer Plessy versus Ferguson, um, and all the way around to different civil rights events all the way through. And members of our church, old and young, families, singles, young adults, manned each of the stations, and they had learned the stories so they could tell the stories to our members. Members and visitors that day, over 1,500 people went through that experience. A church helping people know about the rupture on their way to discovering the restoration. At the very end, my wife, who is second from the right over here, she had set up an exact replica of the William France Elementary School first grade room where Barbara Henry and Ruby Bridges spent that year together. And people came and sat with Ruby Bridges as she told the story. I wonder, I just wonder, if like those Ebola doctors, we might have some work to do to help people know, right, what it could be like to have a community that's part of the restoration. Could you see yourself in that? Now, y'all know the story of the Samaritan. Where's the microphone? I want to hear what you think about that story. I'm going to start at this table over here. So would someone over here volunteer? As, as the, he, he, actually, he actually did point at you first. <laughs> question. Why did Jesus tell that story of rupture to restoration? Why do you think he was telling that story? Well, because he saw the rupture. Mm. And uh, the question that was asked to him was consistent with that rupture. Mm. Uh, and it portrayed a certain mindset. Mm. And that was not the mindset that Jesus came to heal. Wow. Okay. He saw a mindset, but the mindset is the mindset of the rupture, not the healing, right? This table, would someone here volunteer? Okay. He didn't, he gave an, an example, a living action of yeah. breaks rupture. Yeah. I want to make sure we all caught that. Jesus actually gave a living example. Remember what he said, do this and you'll live, and then, he, and then do it. That's right. Um, would someone at this table feel comfortable responding? <laughs> That's right. You're fast. He is. It is really, it's been God's message mm -hmm. since 
Cain and Abel. Uh, the whole time, it's about you are all created in our image, mm. but you're not acting that way. Mm. So it's the central message of the gospel. And like you're saying this morning, that's we're to be people who seek peace and pursue it mm. and, and share God's love. Well, that's beautiful. All right, I'll come back over here. Someone at this table willing to share? No one's pointing? <laughs> if no one points, I'm going to pick. <laughs> Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> to me, the story illustrates that the people that you think that would normally mm. be the ones to come to help didn't, yeah. and the one that you would think that wouldn't did. Mm because you have to, at that time, the general feeling of the Jews toward the Samaritans was not positive. You know, they weren't well thought of. However, this individual showed that what the feelings toward, those, uh, toward uh, the Samaritans at the time as you said, was incomplete. Yes, yes. Boy, isn't that right. If there's anything the story illustrates is we have an incomplete narrative about this whole group of people, right? Okay, Erica, where are you? Okay. Uh, I got to listen in over here, and I want Erica. I told her in advance. I didn't want to put her on the spot. Would you share what you said at this table? Yeah, so I said um, throughout the story, you see multiple ruptures. Um, people you think, like you said, are going to help, and they don't. Um, and you kind of have the cultural barrier, the difference of cultures. Um, so you have the rupture, the rupture, the rupture, and um, then the restoration at the end. And it kind of goes with the kind of upside-down nature of the narrative, the, the story of God. So. Yeah. Something I, I, I'm thankful you shared that because when I was overhearing them and I stepped up right when she was talking and she talked about rupture, 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 where there are multiple ruptures in the story. So before we take our break, I want us to take a moment on this. Who is the only person, the only character that's mentioned in every single verse of the story? Say it again. The only one mentioned in every verse of the story. Yeah, the victim. Yeah, I knew what you meant. I knew what you no, I knew what you meant. I knew what you meant. The victim is the only guy that's mentioned in every single verse. So here's an important question. Who does Jesus want this lawyer to connect with in the story? The guy in the ditch. Because see, when you're the one that gets beaten up and left half dead. I don't know how they knew. You do realize the Bible does say half dead. I don't know if there's a meter on your forehead that says, you know, you're half dead, but you're trending on, you know, to a quarter tank, right? I don't know. But you know, you know, he's the only one that's mentioned in every single verse. Because God or Jesus actually wants the lawyer to connect with that guy. Because if you're the one that's beaten up and left half dead, right? You need a neighbor like never before. So when the first guy comes along and you think, oh, okay, so that's the guy that'll help, that's the expectation, and he doesn't, it ruptures your world. 
but he's a priest, and now, you know, ever since the 160s B.C., the priesthood's kind of funky anyway, maybe. But the Levites, you all remember the story? Jacob's 12 sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Nephtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. You remember the 12? And then you remember when they come back into the land that Joseph doesn't get land, but his two boys do. But how does it turn out to be 12? Because the Levites don't. But they get what? Forty cities of refuge. Of all people, the Levites historically are the people you could count on when you needed refuge. And they fail them. So if people imagine that the church understands how awful the rupture is, and we're on the side of God. We know that rupture is horrible. It should not have happened. It did. But we're not content either. Just if God isn't going to let that thing lie, he's not walking away thinking, oh, well, that didn't turn out very well. No, God is going to say, absolutely not. I am going to restore this thing, and I'm going to raise up a people that will join me in restoring this thing. And along comes a a Samaritan. Well, I wasn't looking for him to be the guy. And you do know what's fascinating is that the Samaritan risks everything, takes this guy to an inn, and stays the night with him. You know the story because what does the Bible say? The next morning. So he actually stayed the night with the guy and models for the innkeeper how you ought to take care of someone. So the next morning, he can then say to the innkeeper, take care of this guy like I just did. And here's some money to make sure you're able to fulfill it. And I'll circle back around and make sure that this man and you were taken care of. What's Jesus' final statement to the or question to the, to, the, to the lawyer. Yeah, who is the neighbor? <laughs> I guess it's the guy that took care of him. He can't even choke out Samaritan, right? And Jesus says, go be like him. So who is he supposed to relate to on the front end of the story? The guy that needs a neighbor. Who is he supposed to relate to on the tail end of the story? The guy that is a neighbor. Now, there's a message for the people of God, right? So we're going to take, how long are we going to take? Ten minutes or so? Ten minutes. Let's take a break. Stand up. uh, uh, Stretch your legs. Use a restroom. And then we'll come back together for a session right before lunch. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.